Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, John Reinhardt highlights the game-changing work of Humphrey Monmouth, who aided William Tyndale in his efforts to translate the Bible into English. So John, tell us about Humphrey Monmouth. What was his background in business? Yeah, in the 1500s, the, the main industry was cloth. It was like technology is today, or filmmaking even. And, and cloth in England went all over the world. And Humphrey Monmouth was great at cloth. He was a cloth merchant. And so he was a great businessman in the 1500s, made a heap of money, but it wasn't about making money for him. That wasn't the end goal of his life. He used it to be incredibly generous to actually fund uh, the English Bible, the first translation of the English Bible. So how did Humphrey Monmouth come in contact with William Tyndale? Before William Tyndale got interested in translating the, the Bible, he was preaching at a church in London. And Humphrey Monmouth somehow found his way to that church and heard this preacher who was a very unusual preacher. And there seemed to be a connection there and said, I want to get to know this guy. I want to get behind this guy. So why was the Tyndale so interested in, in translating the Bible? And secondly, why was that a problem? Well, if we look back in history, we know that the Bible had been in Latin since the fourth century. And though most of the people in England no longer spoke Latin, it was the language of priests, it was the language of academic people, but the common people, the merchants, the business people, they use English. And so everything that they knew about God had been handed down to them through the officials, sort of the official formal church. Well, they could never check it. They could never say, well, let me hear God speak for myself. And Tyndale was really gifted with language, but also burdened for his countrymen. I mean, his parents were business people, merchants, his brothers were merchants. And so here he has the gift of being able to see the Bible for himself, but they can't see it. And so he's burdened going, I have this gift that I could give to my nation and it's never been given before. My grandparents, my parents, my great-grandparents, they've had no access to the Bible for themselves. And he all of a sudden is gripped with, Maybe I could do something about that. John, people would really find it difficult to work out why anyone would stop a translation into English. Why was that a problem? In one sense, there's a thousand years of tradition behind it. Tradition is tough to change. Yeah. And in another sense, it was the church had control of how people were reading the Bible and they could control the interpretation and it made sense to them. So it seems completely foreign to us and, and to some degree it should be. but. It's, tradition's tough to break. So Monmouth, we can understand that Tyndale was the one who did it. He yep. ran from England, yep. uh, ended up in Germany. But, yep. but Monmouth, he's continuing to support Tyndale. What's right. his motivation? What do yeah. you know about his motivation? Yeah, we know that he was taking a huge risk. To support the translation of the English Bible in the 16th century was equivalent to heresy. You could be burned for it. Here's a business guy who has no need of that risk, who says, this is worth doing. We need an English Bible in our generation. I'm willing to go for it. I'm willing to support you. I'm willing to be your gospel patron and stand beside you for that. That's huge. I think it shows his value of scripture and his understanding of the need of that in his generation. Yeah. Now, you, you hinted at this before, but he, he ends up in the Tower of London. Yeah. yeah, the most imposing fortress in London. You can visit it today. Just staying on Humphrey Monmouth. Yeah. So what, what is your feel in studying him a little? I know that's yeah. hard to do. Right. About what his attitude to money and wealth was. He was risk-taking with it. I mean, Jesus talks about storing up your treasure in heaven versus just piling it up here and building bigger barns. Monmouth lived that. He was generous, sacrificial, personally engaged in using his wealth for the Great Commission, for the spread of the, the English Bible. That mattered to him. Uh, that's unusual today. 
to step outside of your comfort zone with your wealth. We all want to be comfortable. And here's Monmouth saying, I'm willing not only to put my money where my mouth is, but to be willing to go into prison for it. That's really significant. What is it that you think that Jesus taught that influenced Monmouth to function in that way? I think Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount and his most famous passage, you know, Matthew chapter five to seven, is live for eternity. Eternity is your true home. And what you do with this life now, including, there's a huge section on money, what you do with your money will affect your eternity. I think anybody who's a Christian would have gravitated toward that passage, that portion of scripture, and been gripped with, I gotta do something different. I can't just live the way the world lives with their wealth, with their finances, if I really believe what Jesus is saying. And Monmouth was that kind of man. Let's look at wealth from what Jesus was teaching and your understanding of what Jesus said about wealth. Because in some ways people kind of see Jesus and wealth or the church or Christians and wealth in two different ways. Okay. One is that wealth is just an evil thing and then yeah. we should avoid it. Yeah, yeah, did, did Jesus yeah. hold that sort of view? Not at all, not at all. He actually had significantly wealthy followers who supported his ministry and he was glad for them. Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3 tells us, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their means. So if Jesus had a problem with wealthy people, I think he would have said, no, 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 you three don't follow me. You three don't contribute to my ministry. No, give it all away and give it to the poor. And then we see Zacchaeus, when he meets Jesus and Jesus came to his house for dinner, he stands up and says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to repay it fourfold and I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus' next line is, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus doesn't say, what, you only give half to the poor? You should give it all away. No, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So Jesus, he wants our hearts to be first loving God and then using wealth for his purposes, not using it for our purposes or even our, you know, fatter, happier lifestyle. But he wants us to use it for his kingdom purposes. John, there are those now that say that Jesus wants everybody to be really wealthy mm. and that, that Jesus wants us to have all that our hearts desires, and that's wealth. Yeah. Is, is that, do you think, what his heart was? Not at all. Jesus, Jesus knew that money could be used for good or for evil, but in and of itself, it's neutral. But he says, be careful with it. Watch out. Uh, you can love money more than God. Jesus says you can't worship both God and money. You actually do have to choose. And we want to say, no, no, I want both. I want to be able to worship both equally, or I don't really want to have to choose. And Jesus says, no, it's imperative that you choose God over money. It's, there's an interesting tension there, isn't it? That Jesus is not saying that you, you're supposed to be poor all your life, and that's right. what we want. And right. nor that he's saying that, but I want you all incredibly wealthy. Right. There's an interesting balance, isn't yeah. there? Jesus entrusted some of us one talent, two, some five, and some of us 10 talents. And we don't know how many talents we have, but the point is that we steward them well. That, that, that's Jesus' focus is wise, godly stewardship, more than it is how much you have or how little you have. Obviously, in your work around gospel patron and yeah. gospel patronage around the world, yeah. you're coming in contact with the kind of Humphrey Monmouths of today. Right. So, John, are they the same? Is that attitude that Monmouth yeah. had still happening? It is, and it's, it's quyatt, and it's often behind the scenes, just like it was with Tyndale and Monmouth. Gospel patrons aren't raising their hand, asking for attention. They're not trying to, to be the one actually on camera even. They're saying, this is who God's made me be. I'm going to fuel gospel ministry. I'm going to partner with those who are doing the work of the kingdom, and I'll be generous towards it 
but I'm happy to be behind the scenes. I'll be focused, I'll be good at business, and in some ways I like to parallel it with an Old Testament king who they would go out to battle, they would win the resources, but they didn't win the resources for themselves, they won the resources for the kingdom. And many Christian businessmen today are doing that. They're in the marketplace, they're on the stock exchange, they're doing their jobs, winning the resources, and fueling the kingdom because of it. It's a, it's a very quiet sort of work, isn't it? It is. Because as you say, they don't want yeah. people to know, but they're right. actually still there actually making a big shift in our community. I, I call them behind the scenes VIPs, <laughs> like backstage pass, but they're making a huge difference today. What areas are they doing that in, John? I mean, that's a very broad question. Yeah. Is it just inside the church? Is it broader in the community? What, where areas do you see that happening? It's both. I mean, I, I like to think of it in, in four categories, really, that they're strengthening the church, and that's probably their local church, and it could be a whole network of churches or a church planning movement. Uh, they're seeking the lost, so they might be fueling evangelists, pastors, missionaries. Um, they are serving the suffering, so they're doing great works to take care of Syrian refugees or uh, feed the hungry and clothe the naked like Jesus told us to. And yet there's that final step of finishing the Great Commission. So how can we push out into the pioneering places where the gospel still has never touched in this world and reach the people who still have no Bible in their language? And there's a lot of gospel patrons putting their shoulder behind that cause and saying, let's get it done in our generation. Let's go back uh, again to not long after Monmouth, because there were others, yeah. weren't there? Yeah. The, the, the great figure of William Wilberforce. Yeah. What was behind him? So William Wilberforce's uncle was a man named John Thornton. Most people don't know this, but John Thornton was the wealthiest merchant in England in the 18th century. He was radically converted at the age of 34, and with his conversion came the conversion of how he saw wealth, used wealth, and engaged with wealth. When Wilberforce was 12 years old, he lived with his uncle and aunt, and he received from them a significant sum of money, and he knew it was for the point of being generous. So as a kid, he's receiving more money than any kid should ever have. This is William Wilberforce now, receiving more money than a kid should have because his uncle's trying to teach him it's better to give than receive at a young age. And we see the legacy of his life was one of a contribution. It was one of making a difference and being incredibly generous. Well, fueling that from behind the scenes was his very wealthy uncle named John Thornton. Now, John Thornton actually passed that on to his son. He did, yeah. So William Wilberforce's best friend, uh, a partner in the Clapham Circle was Thornton's son and his cousin, Henry Thornton. And, and these two really leveraged their, the strength of their friendship and their relationship to rally the whole Clapham Circle around them to say, let's collectively make a difference and go after the slave trade in the 18th century. It's, it's helpful for people to know that while the slave trade was important for Wilberforce and his, I guess in some ways his main focus, yeah. but he and the Clapham Circle did way more than that. Yeah, they did, yeah. They, they fueled mission, the first missionaries who were sent to Australia, Clapham Circle. Uh, huge work in India that was opening the way for missionaries to go to India was probably their second greatest accomplishment. And when Wilber Wilberforce wrote a book when he was in his mid-30s, he wrote one book and he spent four years writing it. And it, it's got a really long title, but you could essentially call it Practical Christianity. And the whole book, which you don't expect from a politician, is all about Christian doctrine. Wilberforce knew that what fuels the change in society is what fuels the change in individual hearts first. And what that is, is the truths of the Bible, the old, old truths of the Bible. When there were recesses in Parliament, Wilberforce would take two to three months, go to a country home and study the Bible eight to nine hours a day. Do you know a politician that would do that with their summer break? Wilberforce was a madman for the Bible. He said, I've got to get this truth into my heart because as it shapes me, it's going to shape the world around me. As you think about the Thorntons and Henry Monmouth, 
It's often been said today that, you know, how much money do you need? Just a little bit more. Yeah. So what stops these guys falling for that line? Yeah. You know, here, here are yeah. these people that don't want just a little bit more. Yeah. A little bit more is how much more to give away. Yeah. Yeah. What do you reckon stops them with that issue? I think more and more in our world, we're sensing that money doesn't satisfy. And I think the more money you have, when you climb to the top of the heap and among your peers, you're the wealthiest person, you don't go, ah, I've made it. Yes, this is finally where I wanted to be. Instead you go, that's it. That really, I'm at the top of the mountain and, and that's it. And I think when you get to that place, you go, there's got to be more. And it's probably not more money. It's probably more generosity. It's probably more of a contribution. And these guys got that. They got it deeply. and stepped away from the networks and the peer circles and all the parties and the fancy balls and stuff that they could have gone to in their day and said, I want a different path. I want to follow Jesus and make a contribution with what he's given me. Uh, not just give it all away, but steward it wisely for his kingdom. This series is about Jesus as a game changer. And as you consider the gospel, gospel patrons and all that you've done, yeah. how is Jesus a game changer in this world? Jesus is a game changer because he fuels the change that a person has to go through between loving money and loving God instead. That choice of laying down the service of money, the love of money to actually value God comes because Jesus enters your heart. And that's what happened for John Thornton in the 18th century. Here's a businessman, a wealthy merchant, and he writes this, Jesus reigns and he will preserve his justified ones. May the Lord strengthen us that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of him and our hearts leap within us every time we hear his sweet name articulated. Have you heard a businessman talk like that before? <laughs> he goes on to say, may the Lord keep us earnest for the salvation of our dear friends and relatives and all around us. Let us not with Peter be disturbed with the high winds and the storms of life, but keeping our eyes riveted on Jesus, go through good report and evil report, steadfast, unmovable, ever abounding in the work of the Lord. That quote from John Thornton changed the game for me as I studied gospel patrons because I saw deep in the heart of this man was a passionate love for Jesus that fueled his generosity, it fueled how he thought, it fueled the men in ministry that he partnered with. Uh, he was a man for Jesus and his final words when he was dying was happy in Jesus. All is as well as it could be, precious, precious. And then he died, but everyone in that room knew what his last word was. It was Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.